In the metta practice, after we begin feeling love and kindness for ourselves, begin to send it our loving wishes to a benefactor. Tonight I'd like to speak about someone who has been a benefactor for us all. In fact, someone who is responsible for us all sitting here together during these days. I'd like to speak of the meaning and significance of the life of the Buddha. The meaning and significance for us, for our own lives, in these times. We can understand his life on different levels. On one level, he was an historical individual. He lived 6th century BC born to a certain family, went through different experiences. And we could chart the historical story of his life. That's one level of understanding. Another level of understanding is that of the Buddha as a universal archetype of humanity. Basic archetype of the awakened mind expression of the awakened mind. On this level, the Buddha represents or embodies not only his own particular historical life, but he also represents a great mythological journey. And here myth means something quite interesting. Often we hear the word myth or mythological and we think of it as being unreal in some way or imaginary. But really mythological, I think, has a deeper significance because the power of myth is that it universalizes the particular. And so the Buddha's life seen in this way, as an archetype of the awakened mind, of his life as being this great mythological journey, it begins to reveal to us the universal aspirations within our own lives. And it helps us view our own lives in a much broader context and with much greater meaning than we usually do. We begin to connect with a deeper purpose for ourselves. We actually connect in a very real way the Buddha's journey with our own journey. Now, sometimes when we think of the world's great explorers, really in any field, we might be struck by the courage and the mystery of their exploration. You know, the excitement of being at the edge of what is known. That's really what an explorer does. It's exploring the unknown in some field or other. We can appreciate the courage that's needed to do that. 
But often we overlook the mosquitoes and the black flies, you know, and the daily hardships and the inconvenience and the irritation and frustration and defeats and failures and all the things that are part of that journey. It's easy to romanticize this journey of discovery. In the same way, the countless ups and downs of our own practice, you know, the difficulties we face, and the frustrations, and the boredom, and the restlessness, and all of it, this is part of the exploration of our own minds, our own lives. It's not all wonder and awe and mystery. But all of it together is part of this playing the edge, pushing the boundaries of what we know of ourselves. It's pushing the boundaries of the known about our own minds and about our capacities our capacity for effort, our capacity for love, our capacity for compassion. This journey of discovery was described very beautifully in a book by Joseph Campbell called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And in this book, he uses the Buddha's life as an example of the archetypal spiritual journey to awakening. It's very interesting because he interweaves the personal historic experience of the Buddha's life with the more universal principles that they embody. So the first stage that's talked about on this journey of awakening is called the call to destiny, or the call to awakening. And it happens, this call arises within us, when something happens in our lives that shakes us up, that helps to begin wake us up. It makes us question how it is that we're living, what our lives are about, When we begin to sense that somehow the conventional understandings of society no longer are quite doing it for us, that we're looking for something deeper, something more satisfying. The convention of the world is contained in one verb. And this is the verb to have. We have possessions. We have relationships. We have a body. We have a mind. We have a self, or so we think. You know, and our language and the way we talk conventionally keeps reinforcing this sense that somehow, as Eric Fromm expressed it, I am what I have. And this becomes our identity. Problem is, there's a big problem in this way of understanding, 
that because of the great truth of impermanence and change, that whatever we have, whatever we have, the body, the mind, the relationships, the people in our lives, possessions, whatever we have, we will lose because everything is changing. There is nothing which is remaining. And so always there's this underlying sense of unease. If our identity is contained in I am what I have, and in the very nature of things, we're going to lose what we have, somewhere in us all there is this feeling of something not quite right, a feeling of discontent or anxiety or is there something else? Is there something more complete, more fulfilling, more whole? In the early life of the Buddha, and he was known as the Bodhisattva before his enlightenment, being aspiring towards Buddhahood, in the early life of the Bodhisattva, his world of having was very strong. You know, he was born as a prince, you know, princely family, palaces, all the luxuries of the time, a loving family. He had developed all the worldly arts and knowledges. He had a loving relationship, a loving wife. So his life was very full, very complete in that conventional way. He had everything that the world values, everything that our world values, But for Prince Siddhartha, the call to awakening, the call to destiny, came when he began to question deeply what his life was about. When he came to face to face with what are called, as we've talked about, the four heavenly messengers, that is the experience of old age and disease, decay and death. It said that he reflected, why should I, who am subject to decay and death, keep seeking that which is subject to decay and death? Why should I, who am subject to impermanence and change, keep seeking in my life those things which are also going to change? And it's a profound question for ourselves because we are doing the same thing. Mostly our lives revolve about going after things that in their nature are not permanent. So the call to destiny came when he began questioning this. Where is the real value in doing that? Is there a place where things of lasting value can really be found? Some careful observations of very obvious truths sometimes help to jolt us out of the inertia of our complacency. Now, it's so easy to get caught up just in, this, in the momentum of our lives and be carried along on that current. And so we need to bring in some real 
discriminating wisdom, some reflective wisdom to see what is really going on. One of the powerful reflections, one of the heavenly messengers, is the reflection on the truth of death, reflection on death, the inevitability of it, the uncertainty of the time of it. Now, most of us go along thinking, well, it's somewhere off in the future, the unknown future, but we really don't know. It's quite amazing how often our awareness of death, because we all know that it's going to happen, but somehow it seems limited to other people. (laughs) We're quite aware that other people are going to die. But do we actually reflect on the fact that we ourselves and the people very close to us are also going to die inevitably and at an unknown time. We don't often consider this until the heavenly messenger in one form or another comes to touch us personally. Either through the death of loved ones or grave illness that we ourselves have. And then it's like it awakens us from the complacency of not reflecting on this. It's very interesting to imagine our own deaths and to see how vivid we can become in that. And then to see what it is that we're attached to. What are we holding on to? What are we afraid to lose? Is it our bodies? Is it our possessions? Is it the people around us? Just so we see what is happening in our lives, where we're holding, where we need to let go. And through this reflection, we begin to get the sense or the understanding that at the time of death, the only thing that will be of real value is our practice and understanding of the Dharma our understanding of our minds, of our hearts. That's what will be the real value at that time. I want to read something about the death of Thoreau because he was quite an amazing person person, even though he probably never lift, move, placed, he was a very mindful being, very reflective, very aware you know, of, these, of these questions. He died quite young, he was in his 40s, and he had an extraordinary understanding, he had an extraordinary awareness of life and death. During, this is somebody writing, a friend of his, who was writing about it. During his long illness, I never heard a murmur escape him or the slightest wish expressed to remain with us. 
His perfect contentment was truly wonderful. None of his friends seemed to realize how very ill he was. So full of life and good cheer did he seem. One friend, as if by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, When I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die. And I set that down. So of course I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, aunt. It's quite amazing. He clearly had come to some profound understanding and realization. So it raises many questions for us. You know, compelling questions. What is the nature of birth and death? What is it that's born? What is it that dies? What choices are we making in our lives? Really, what is this whole process of life about? Can we pay attention? Can we ask those questions now when we have the power and the interest and the willingness to investigate? And what's interesting is I think that many people have these questions arise in their minds and in their lives, but so often they arise and then we simply get re-immersed in the busyness of our lives. And we don't take the time. We don't stop to really inquire. Of course, this is the great beauty of a retreat. We can actually look into the nature of our own minds. Each one of us here has had some call to awakening. This call to destiny, this first stage on the spiritual journey, or we wouldn't be here. So there's something very powerful in all of us. I mean, this is not a place people come to for a vacation. (laughs) You you, You need to have some strong motivation to do this. And it's interesting to reflect for each one of us, well, what was our call to awakening? What was it that, that woke us up you know, from the sleep of simply being carried along by the currents of our lives? I remember when I was in college, I was a freshman in college, and I became obsessed with the question of whether God existed or not. And it just felt like my whole life depended on my resolving that question. And at some point, it had gotten to such a pitch, I remember giving myself a week. (laughs) (laughs) By the end of this week, I'm going to (laughs) know. Unfortunately, I don't remember the end of the story. (laughs) 
But I remember the intensity of the wanting to know. You know, and then again when I was in the Peace Corps, I was this, I was young, 21 or 22. You know, and just watching myself go through all the 21 and 22-year-old interpersonal stuff, and just this, this compelling question, well, who's behind it all? You know, if I could, I, I remember feeling, I wanted to open myself up and just find who's on the inside of all this action and all this activity. It's that kind of necessity to understand. That's the call to awakening, the call to destiny. And we all have had that. It's very helpful, I think, on this spiritual journey to at times reconnect with what our initial inspiration was. Now, what is it that woke us up? Because it reconnects us with our source of energy, reminds us of our basic motivation to practice. So the first stage is called the call to destiny, the call to awakening. The second stage on this spiritual journey, Joseph Campbell calls the great renunciation. Because in order to awaken to the hidden possibilities in life, we have to be willing to renounce our habitual ways of viewing things and seeing things and understanding things. We have to be willing to give up our ordinary mode of understanding to see what's beyond that, and beneath it. Things are not always what they seem to be. And we live very often on a level of superficial perception. To explore the mysteries of our own lives, we need to be willing to go deeper, to go underneath that surface. There are so many examples of how much is hidden. A couple of years ago, I remember reading in, I was either in Time or Newsweek, it was in the science section, how astronomers had recently discovered in the vicinity of the Big Dipper, and I don't know if I have this number exactly right, but it was something like this, a hundred billion new galaxies that they hadn't previously known were there. That's a lot to miss. (laughs) And I'm sure that's only the tiniest part of what we're missing. There's a lot that we don't see. And going in the other direction, I came across another piece of science, and it's not that I have very great expertise in all this at all, but just the, the idea of it was so astounding to me. This said, in very round terms, the quantum world, the world of quantum reality, you know, where all those 
sub 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 atomic particles are living <laughs> you know the quantum world operates on a scale as much smaller than a sugar cube as a sugar cube is compared to the entire observable universe <laughs> that was just astounding to me <laughs> When you compare a sugar cube to the entire observable universe and this reality that in somehow is observed or measured or whatever they do with the quantum level. <laughs> it's that much smaller than a sugar cube is to the entire observable universe. There is a lot going on. You know, and our normal perception our conventional perception that makes things so solid and so real, it's a very tiny sliver of the truth of things. Now, what's so amazing about the practice, I mean, this is in terms of the physical realities, the galaxies and the quantum level, but what's so amazing about the meditation practice is as we turn into the exploration, as we develop the tools of exploration, as we go into our own minds and our own bodies, we begin to explore that dimension of difference. There's an amazing, amazing new realities to discover within our own minds. But in order to do this, we need to have a bit of renunciation of having as being the operative value in our lives. Because to the degree that we are caught or attached or stuck in that way of holding things, I am what I have. You know, and it can be the whole range of having, even these are the views I have. We need to, we need to renounce. This is the great renunciation. We need to renounce that world of having so our minds are open enough and pliable enough and interested enough to really look into all of these other dimensions of who we are, of what our lives really are about. And what's so wonderful about learning the practice is seeing that we can do this. It's not just for extraordinary individuals. It's simply developing the tools of concentration, of mindfulness, of attention. we begin to discover that our happiness, our genuine happiness, depends much more on the quality of our hearts and minds, on the quality of our being, rather than anything we have. So at least that's putting us in the right ballpark. Instead of seeking happiness, in an arena that cannot provide it, finally, we begin to understand, yes, it's the cultivation of the beautiful qualities of mind and heart that is going to be the source of our happiness. And so we know where to look, we know what to cultivate. This great renunciation 
happens on many levels. It happens externally, even by coming to retreat. You know, we've all, you all particularly, have renounced a lot in terms of just the comforts of your home and the conveniences and, you know, the usual way you live. There's a renunciation in coming here. It's necessary. There's a renunciation inwardly. And not only around external things, there's the renunciation of the indulgence in the discursive mind. It's not that the wandering mind stops, but there's a basic intentionality. Once we're aware, can we come back? But that's our practice. We're not simply indulging the wandering mind over and over again. We're renouncing the habit of distractedness. We're renouncing through our understanding our attachment to the sense of self. For the Bodhisattva, in his life, this great renunciation happened When he gave up, he renounced his home, he renounced the palace, he renounced the kingdom, he renounced his family, and went off and spent six years in the forest with many different teachers trying to penetrate this mystery of life and death, of understanding what it was all about. He studied with many different teachers, he did all these ascetic practices, he developed the different levels of concentration, And it all prepared him for the third stage of the spiritual journey. There's the call to awakening, which he had, which we all have. There's the great renunciation, the giving up of our habitual way of viewing things. The third stage on this journey that we're all on is called the great struggle. Yes. (laughs) For the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, it's described particularly as the night he sat under the Bodhi tree, the night of his enlightenment, when as he was sitting under the Tree, and he had made this tremendous resolve, I'm not getting up from this seat until I have achieved full and perfect enlightenment. Now, can you imagine coming into the hall? <laughs> I mean, it just gives you some indication of the amazing strength of the Bodhisattva's resolve. And, well, fortunately... He got enlightened that night. <laughs> but before, before the awakening, he was confronted with all the forces, you know, in the Buddhist terminology, Mara. That's kind of the personification of all the forces of ignorance and illusion. So I'd like to read from Joseph Campbell, because he describes with great mythopoetic imagery what was happening that night. And so as you listen, just see if you can and get into the imagery of it, because it's quite uh, powerful. 
the Buddha placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree and straightway was approached by Kama Mara, the the god of desire and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carried weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended twelve leagues before him, twelve to the right, twelve to the left, and in the rear as far as to the confines of the world. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree, and the god then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder, and flames, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness Mara hurled against the Bodhisattva. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers by the power of the Bodhisattva's perfections. Mara then deployed his daughter's desire, pining, and lust, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting there, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily, and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips, and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. And she did so, with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the god of all the world scattered garlands. Every time we sit, we're sitting under the Bodhi tree. And every time we sit... Mara comes, (laughs) striving to break our concentration. (laughs) We're confronted, just as the Bodhisattva was, by all the armies of Mara. There's desire and fear and anger and rage and frustration and boredom and restlessness. All these forces of ignorance. So it's important to see that our own struggles have much greater meaning than just our immediate experience of them. Because they're part of this great journey that we're on, just as the Bodhisattva was on. We're sitting under the tree every time we sit with the intention to be mindful. Thomas Merton who was a great contemplative, he said something very to the point about the nature of this great struggle, this stage of the journey. He said, prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. You know, so the difficulties we face, it's not just our own individual problems or failures. or This is the journey. This is the struggle. This is the stage where we're coming face to face with all the forces that are within us. And there's tremendous power in it. 
So this is the meaning of courageous effort. That is the willingness to open to it all. As we said, and all of these forces start manifesting, do we have the courage to be with it, to see it, to open to it, to feel it? In the Pali language, the word virya is most often translated as effort. So there's a lot of talk about making effort, right effort. But it can also be misunderstood. And people often in their practice get hung up on effort because it easily turns into expectation or striving or efforting or ambition. I think there's a better translation, at least for us in our culture, for this word virya. We think of virya as meaning the courageous heart. And that actually is a translation of that Pali word. It implies a very different sense. It's not so much a sense of effort to get something that we don't have. It's that heart of courage that's open and willing to be with exactly what is present. Can we practice that courageous heart? It needs to come from a place of interest, from a place of willingness, our own inner inspiration, not from a place of how we think we should be. And that's why we need to connect with our own call to destiny, call to awakening, to remind us, yes, I want to see this, I want to understand this. It's this kind of courageous effort that allows us to play at the very edge in our lives, to play at our boundaries. You know, we can accept this much, and then we get to the edge, and anything more is too much. Well, right at that edge, right at that boundary, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or the restless mind, whatever it is, we're right at the edge of what we can be with. Can we take a deep breath, connect with our courageous heart and say, this is okay. Let me be with this. Let me be with this. And slowly, with a lot of back and forth and advances and retreats, slowly we find ourselves opening. Our capacity becomes greater to hold it all. Now, and as I imagine the mind of the Buddha, I think of a mind without boundaries. A mind that is totally free in the experience of whatever is arising. We are all on that path. Being at the edge is our place of opening. Call to destiny wakes us up from the habits of our lives. The great renunciation, a willingness to let go, at least temporarily, of our habitual way of viewing ourselves in the world and of how we think things are. So we open to what's hidden and unknown. The great struggle, which happens when we do open, 
we begin to confront and be with all the forces within us. The last stage of this journey is called the Great Awakening. For the Buddha, it happened on that night of his enlightenment. And it's said that at first he saw just the long succession of all his past lives, beings born, living their lives, dying, being reborn. He saw the endless succession and the insubstantiality of it all. He understood the law of karma, that beings were taking rebirth according to their actions. And it's said that in this understanding, it's where his great compassion flowered, because he saw beings who wanted happiness and yet were doing the very actions which were the conditions for suffering, out of ignorance. And how often do we do that in our own lives? We want to be happy, and yet through not paying attention, through being ignorant of the causes of happiness, we do the very things which cause suffering to ourselves, to other people. So a great compassion arose. He realized what later came to be known as the Four Noble Truths. He realized the truth of suffering and its causes, and the end of suffering, and the way to the end of suffering. It's said that at daybreak, just as the morning star appeared, he attained to full and complete liberation. There are some very beautiful renderings of what the Buddha is said to have uttered just in that moment of awakening. So just imagine, if you can, here's a being who spent countless lifetimes in this quest Morning comes, the morning star is there. He finally fulfills this aspiration of lifetimes for Buddhahood. And the first thing that he is said to have said, I traveled through the rounds of countless births, seeking but not finding the builder of this house, this house of self. Sorrowful is birth again and again. O house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build no house again. Your rafters, the defilements, have been broken. Your ridgepole, ignorance, shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. Amazing moment. Won't it be nice when we'll be able to say, achieved is the end of craving? Well, we're on the path. So he spent some time around the Bodhi tree contemplating the fruits of his enlightenment. He left then for Sarnath, which was then a deer park outside the city of Benares where he met and taught the first five disciples. And it's by giving the first discourses, he set in motion 
what is called the wheel of the Dharma, or the wheel of the law. And it's a wheel that has been rolling across continents, across centuries, right, to Barry, Massachusetts. You know, and he set in motion in those first discourses the basic teachings of the next 45 years of the Four Noble Truths, of selflessness, of emptiness. When he had his first 60 disciples who were fully enlightened, he gave them a mission, instruction, which is very significant. He said, Go forth, O bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good benefit and happiness of people and devas, celestial beings. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dharma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, and excellent in the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others, you who have accomplished your duties. And so right from the very beginning, we have the understanding that we are not doing this for ourselves alone. And this is the arising of what is called bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is that aspiration that we become free, we become liberated in order to help awaken and liberate all other beings. It's the realization that we are not practicing just for ourselves, but that our practice can be for the benefit and welfare of all. But it's important also not to idealize this, because maybe we are at the place where we are simply planting the seed of the aspiration to have the aspiration. Now this is a big thing, to dedicate one's life for the welfare and benefit of all beings. We may not quite be there yet. That's fine. Even to have the thought, that would be a good thing to do. That would be a good thing to cultivate. We just have the aspiration to have that awakening us is a tremendous opening. The Dalai Lama spoke of this. He said, speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. (laughs) When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality, except for one small thing. That is the kind heart which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. Okay, this is the Dalai Lama speaking. <laughs> so it's just making that connection with the possibility. 
so that we can begin to think about really dedicating our lives and our practice to serve all other beings. And it changes, it transforms our life, even this very tiny little seed. In every moment that we free ourselves from the prison of self, of self-centeredness, in every moment that we free ourselves from the attachment to this notion of I and mine, in that moment, this heart-mind manifests a very natural love and compassion. This is from a Tibetan text describing the nature of mind. It says, mind's nature. And as I read this, really look at the nature of your own mind, because it's describing it so beautifully. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. That is the nature of our own minds. Many of you probably know of Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, who was one of the great saints, Indian saints of this century. He didn't do a lot of verbal teaching. He was really embodying the teaching a lot. But there were a few of his uh, phrases which uh, resonate and often very simple things with very profound implications. One of the things that he said often do what you do, but don't throw anyone out of your heart. And I find that that simple phrase is a clear and beautiful reference point by which we can measure our actions, by which we can measure our relationships. Because it reflects back to us those times when we do feel separate, when we do feel judgmental, when we have imprisoned ourselves again in this sense of self. So it's not that that's not going to happen, but if we keep this as our bottom line reference point, simple, simple to remember, don't throw anyone out of your heart. It reveals to us all of those times, and there are many times, when we are siding with ourselves, and when we are contracted in the sense of self. And then we practice coming again and again to that place of non-separation, the place of bodhicitta. And we do it in two ways. We do it through the practice of metta, of compassion, 
by slowly extending the domain, extending the arena. We start with ourselves, benefactor, friend, neutral person, the enemy, all beings. And so we embrace more and more beings in that field of metta. And this is a practice, and it's a practice we can cultivate. We practice bodhicitta from another side, and that is through the side of selflessness. Because through the understanding of selflessness, we realize there is no one there to be separate. There is no one there to defend. There is no one there to keep anyone out. And in this understanding, we begin to see that wisdom and love, wisdom and compassion, are two sides of the same thing. The feelings of metta and compassion are the expression of emptiness. And in the genuine understanding of emptiness, feelings of love and compassion happen spontaneously. I'd like to read one little story about this, about the Zen poet, master, Ryokan. He was an 18th century Zen monk, hermit, poet, who wrote beautiful haikus and, and other kinds of poetry. And he used to just live up by himself in the mountains and play with the kids and be in the moment and live his life as an expression of this free and enlightened mind. So this is a little story about Ryokan told by a student, a disciple of his. When the Zen master went out, children would follow him. Sometimes they would shout at him loudly. And the master would shout back in surprise, throwing up his hands, reeling backward and almost losing his balance. Whenever the children found him, they were always ready to do this. Ordinary people frowned on this behavior. My late father once questioned the master about it. Ryokan laughed and told him, When the children surprise me this way, it makes them happy. When the children are happy, it makes me happy. The children are happy, and I'm happy too. Everyone is happy, together. And so I do it all the time. There's no truer happiness than this. This happiness of the masters was itself a manifestation of the ultimate truth. Nevertheless, at times Ryokan did become exhausted and would have to make his escape. The children liked to circle around him, clapping their hands and laughing with delight. When the teacher tires of this, when Ryokan tires of this, he lies down and pretends to be dead. <laughs> and then when the children are no longer hemming him in, he slowly gets up and walks away. <laughs> Not a bad way to spend one's life. <laughs> the emptier we are of self, of self-centeredness, of self-reference, the more we understand 
deeply the selfless nature of this mind and body, the natural expression is one of love and compassion and kindness and joy and happiness. There's the call to destiny, the call which wakes us up from the conventions of our lives, where we really begin to question what is of importance, what is of value, of real value. There's the great renunciation, the realizing that we need to, at least four times, give up our usual and more superficial ways of viewing things so we can explore what's hidden. There's the great struggle, what we're all familiar with, dealing with all the forces of Mara that arise within us, that are forces of the mind. And there's the great awakening, coming to understand that place of freedom. And we all get glimpses of it, we get tastes of it, in those moments of non-clinging, non-grasping, non-attachment. And so we cultivate those moments, cultivate that place of freedom. I'd like to close with the very last words of the Buddha. And just imagine now, the Buddha, enlightened at the age of 35, taught for 45 years all around northern India, the very end of his life with many of his disciples, the nuns and the monks and the lay people, and said many celestial beings all were surrounding him at the time of his death. And these are his last words. Obviously, they have tremendous import. This is his last message to us. With the light of perfect wisdom... Illuminate the darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with diligence. With the light of perfect wisdom, illuminate the darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with diligence. Let's sit for a couple of minutes.
believe the schedule for tomorrow is posted. We'll be breaking the silence for a short period tomorrow afternoon, I think around 3.30. So please keep the silence and keep your practice going until then, both out of respect for your own practice, what's possible, and respect for all the other yogis here. The very last day of a retreat is like the dessert Put in all this time and all this effort and build up the momentum of your practice. It may not be the dessert you ordered. (laughs) But it's the dessert. (laughs) So be with it with a courageous heart. (laughs) 